Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. You were kind enough to help us on a program earlier this year on wildlife trafficking. And obviously you have a wide breadth of, of experience but one of the things we want to talk about specifically today is a brand new podcast uh, that you're involved in that just came out. It's called A Nation for Thieves. It's from Lionsgate Sound. It's on Apple Podcasts. Uh, there's going to be seven episodes. Four have already dropped. And it's thematically about the broad issue of kleptocracy, corruption. And as we know, in the financial crime prevention community, that sort of moves everything. So. First, before we talk about some of the themes in that program and want to get sure and want to make sure everybody will send them a link so they'll know where to find this. Tell us a little bit about uh, your experience in this in this space. You started off at the FBI. Now you're working for the Century as a special investigator. Give us a sense of how you moved to when you went to the FBI, how you started to look at corruption issues. And I'll ask you a couple of follow ups about what it was like then and what it's like now. Well, John, it's great to talk to you again. Anyway, um, yeah, you know, it, it worked out like the perfect storm. Um, I was on a terrorism special ops squad at Washington field office, and I had done that for a couple of years. I was looking for something else. And um, I uh, was transferred to a squad that did international money laundering, money laundering and asset recovery. And I laugh because people go, oh, you do asset forfeiture. I'm like, no, no, you don't get it. Asset forfeiture, I said, crimes are done for money. And I take that money away from them. And so I loved working on international money laundering and asset recovery cases because I was going after some of the people that were the worst of the worst, right? I mean, people who had looted uh, initially millions, hundreds of millions, and then billions of dollars from state coffers, which again has this horrible trickle down effect uh, to abject poverty, klept, uh, kleptocratic regimes. So, um, I, you know, I got into my first, what you would call kleptocracy now, but was just called inter international corruption back in 2003 um, with the Lazarenko case, uh, Pavel Lazarenko, former prime minister of Ukraine. I ended up seizing $258 million from Lazarenko and uh, went on to seize another what, $630 million from the former president of Nigeria, Sonny Abacha. And, you know, I I started to be the go-to person for those types of investigations. And eventually by 2014, 2015, it was called kleptocracy. And um, But what you really find out is that Corruption is kind of the root of all evil when it comes right. to what's what's going on in some country. Whether you look at Venezuela, South Sudan, um, Myanmar, uh, you know, Equatorial Guinea, there's a huge link between what the problems of the country and corruption. You know, and one of the things people don't always associate when there's corruption in a government, the impact it has on day-to-day -day people, on the economy, obviously, because funds that could be used to help with, you know, medicine supplies and water utilities that that go, uh, you know, un unused there. So that's one thing. But it it definitely affects education and so many other spaces. But there are so many countries that are corrupt. 
Um, give, give us, we'll talk about South Sudan because I know that's something you're working on, but how does it relate to Ukraine, Russia, the, the, these issues today? We'll go back in time a little bit, but I'm curious because I know that, that some of the things you've talked about in your, uh, in your podcast, and then I do want to go back to talk about Lazarenko and Abacha because of rigs, but tell us a little bit about today, how it's impactful, if it is at all, the corruption that has occurred in, in Russia has that had an impact on the war in Ukraine, vice versa? Absolutely. You know, what so many people don't realize is that uh, when Yanukovych, former pre uh, Ukrainian president Yanukovych, fled at the end of 20 or in 2014, while he was in office, he literally looted $40 billion out of the Ukrainian budget, right? I, 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 honestly consider it the financial rape of a country because what that did is it weakened their military and literally opened the door for Russia to annex or, or seize, steal, take Crimea. Right. And they were able to do that because there was no money in that was um, in the military. I landed in Kyiv just like 10 days after Yanukovych fled and literally, the you know, I said, hi, I'm Debbie Laprobottom with the FBI. And the guy goes, we're being invaded. Could you come back? <laughs> you know, like, you know, they're, they're lining up on our eastern border. And they had no bullets in their gun. I mean, oh. so the, the looting of Ukraine weakened their military and opened the door for Putin to take Crimea and invade Ukraine. So here we are. The next president, Poroshenko, another $5 billion left Ukraine. And again, both both Yanukovych and Poroshenko were Putin's men. So you know now you have uh, President Zelensky who's trying to rebuild a country, but a country that's been looted of $45 billion that, as you said, didn't go into education, didn't go into healthcare, didn't go to uh, uh, to fortify their border and protect the uh, and arm their military so that they could protect themselves. So yes, there is a direct correlation between the corruption and uh, and political looting of state coffers and what's going on um, today with Russia invading Ukraine again. Going back to the early uh, you know two thousands uh, right after nine eleven and the. Um, the issue with, uh, as you talk about in your podcast, Riggs Bank, I always like to say when I teach, I also teach a class at George Mason when I do, I always say that's the clear model of reputation risk, right? So Riggs Bank, very popular institution, well known, it's gone. And why is it gone? I'll let you tell the story, but it's a perfect example of when financial institutions don't do the right thing and get in and they enable oligarchs and kleptocrats and that sort of thing. But I know you were involved, uh, you were at the FBI at that time. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh yeah, I mean, well, you, it is the poster child for don't do this, right? Uh, as a financial institution and as you said, institutional reputation. Um, I, I mean, they were knowingly laundering money for Pinochet, for uh, Equatorial Guinea and the um, Obiang family. Um, money would come in. I remember a suitcase stuffed with like $4 million and uh, it was just deposited without any of that pesky paperwork that's required for a suspicious activity report or a yeah. currency transaction report. The things, the, the rules that banks are supposed to follow for reputational integrity and, and just uh, for uh, honesty, right? And so one of the people, I ended up arresting Simon Carreri 
and his wife, the, the vice president of Caribbean accounts at Riggs Bank. Um, and it was interesting because they had moved a million dollars uh, out of the country. And I believe the when we arrested his wife, they had children and the judge told Nene Falkareri, Simon's wife, uh, I assume you would like to be out on bond, but you have a million dollars outside of the country. So I see you as a flight risk. So, but return that money and maybe we could arrange bail. And so we, we were able to get a million dollars back into the country, but yeah, I mean, they, they were, they certainly put finance benefit, uh, financial transactions over what was right for the bank and what was morally and legally their obligation. The, uh, um, you know, corruption then and corruption today. So a broad question is how different or similar is it? Obviously, there's more ways to move money now. Obviously, there's, you know, uh, you, you talk about cryptocurrency and all the, the things related to that. But just just in terms of process, if you're an, if you were an FBI agent today, would investigating corruption and kleptocracy be similar besides the changes in technology, which I get? I'm sure you still talk to some some of your former colleagues and all of that is it is it similar in terms of thematically what you're going after or has it changed drastically give us your sense of that well i will tell you the first thing that i noticed right as i was leaving at the end of december 2015 was that the quantity of money that's stolen is just so much greater right mm -hmm. um Abacha was the first case where I had to stop saying millions or hundreds of millions and start saying billions. And then, of course, you see Malaysia's one MDB case and there's five billion. But when I left the FBI, I had at least 10 cases where governments were missing in excess of a billion to five billion dollars. Obviously, Ukraine, 40 billion. Um, and uh, Moldova lost a billion in three days back in the day. And now they're missing, I believe, around 20 billion. Um, so the amounts of money that are being stolen is just ridiculous. That being said, if you're an investigator, it is so much easier to find where a billion dollars went because it's hard to it's hard to uh, carry a billion dollars, right? So money does move electronically. There is a paper trail. Also, you buy crazy stuff. You buy the yacht, you buy the villa, you buy an aircraft. Well, I can seize a yacht. I can seize an aircraft. Um, and, you know, the FBI has actually been very successful at seizing cryptocurrency. What I will remind people is that the average corrupt leader is over 50 years old, right? And so they don't like cryptocurrency. They don't like, they want, poor, you know, I laugh. I used to, when I was in Ukraine after Yanukovych fled, I said, people want portable gold. What you find is that the average kleptocrat uh, is over 50. They've been in office for longer than a decade, sometimes two decades. And what they want is they want gold diamonds. Uh, after Yanukovych fled, there was a headline in Ukraine that said, if this is what he left behind. And what they found is when they searched Edward Stavinsky, the former minister of petroleum's uh, apartment, they found 42.8 kilos or hundred pounds of portable gold, trays of diamonds, $5 million still shrink wrapped with Fed Reserve bundle images on it. And I said, it, you know, my goodness, what, he couldn't shove a few more uh, ingots in his pocket? He couldn't pour the diamonds into his pocket before he left? And that was why, if this is what he left behind, what did he take with him? So, no, you know, I will have to say, for the most part, uh, tracing the money is similar. 
um, it, there's going to be a paper trail because you're trying to move hundreds of millions to billions of dollars. You are offshoring it often in things that are tangible. Uh, yachts, property, aircraft, uh, vehicles, villas, more than one home. And you're trying to get it to a safe haven so they have access to it. And most of those safe havens nowadays will cooperate. And um, there's very, I mean, China, Iraq, Syria, there are certain places in the world, obviously, where the U.S. will have a difficult time recovering assets or getting any cooperation. But there's like Switzerland used to be that black hole. Well, it's not anymore. Uh, the Seychelles used to be another black hole, and they're not anymore. So um, I would say it's a lot uh, better. I mean, it, it's improved our ability to trace and recover assets internationally, uh, even over a decade ago. How does um, these oligarchs, these kleptocrats, they can't just do this on their own. So obviously they need enablers. Is the enablers, are they um, elected officials in some of these governments? Uh, I know it depends on the jurisdiction, so I get that. But just in general, it seems to me that uh, you're going to have to have a lot of support for what you're doing. What do you find with a lot of these investigations? Like, is it just the corruption is so widespread uh, that they sort of uh, uh, get, you know, get, get support from leaders in exchange, you know, sort of the quid pro quo that they always talk about? Generally speaking, how do they get away with this? Well, in a kleptocratic regime, they surround themselves with yes people, right? They, mm -hmm. People that are loyal to them and, and people who are benefiting from that kle uh, kleptocratic regime. So they're involved and they're protecting themselves as well as, and, and it, that's their cash cow. So that's how it happens so successfully within a regime, whether it's South Sudan, whether it's Equatorial Guinea, whether it's Venezuela, the, the uh, political and military elites have the power, the power gives them access to the money, and they utilize all of their assets to stay in power and keep access to that money. Uh, internationally, you still have bankers you know, that are willing to doctor records, to hide the source of the money. Um, you know, I was looking at um, illicit gold coming, uh, being processed at a refinery in Africa and I was looking at money coming out of the Congo. But while I was looking at those records, I saw money coming in from Venezuela, but mm. through Aruba. I'm like, well, Aruba doesn't have gold, <laughs> right? So where's the gold that's coming from Aruba to Venezuela coming from? Well, it was, I mean, to Africa. It was coming from Venezuela. So I, I turned that information over to the FBI because it's like, you know, if you're looking for Maduro's money, some of it, well, this is how it's being processed. So uh, a, a lot of the same dirty culprits are using the same mechanisms, the same group of enablers. Um, you know, there's the Enablers Act that is before the Senate right now in the United States, where the right. U.S. is trying to shore up some of those loopholes that we had for uh, financial managers, hedge funds, investment uh, financiers. And so, you know, hopefully that will pass very soon. But it's it's the people who make money off of these people, and they will certainly often put greed over doing the right thing. Yeah, I share your views on the Enablers Act, and don't share your optimism it's going to make it through. But I think uh, 
there's always been gaps in our laws, obviously, right? Investment advisors, as you mentioned, and, and others. Um, going back to the to the podcast, one of your episodes focuses, it's called The Most Corrupt Country in the World, which obviously there's so many countries that are corrupt. It focuses on Nigeria. Talk a little bit about the themes in that episode, but also I know you wanted to mention, you already talked about South Sudan a few times, uh, about the problems there. Give us a little, give us a little taste of uh, what you're going to be covering in the podcast uh, on those uh, jurisdictions. Yeah, well, you know, South uh, Nigeria, you know, has had such a history of corruption. And I mean, you just go back, but uh, good luck, Jonathan, was president while I was investigating. Very corrupt regime. And um, Buhari, who replaced good luck, President Buhari, who replaced him, said, um, you know, our country has been looted and we're going to go after it. Yet he never went after good luck, Jonathan. I assume because he wanted a smooth transition of power. But I happen to have been brought in years earlier. And he said, Debbie, could you go after Sonny Abacha's money? And Abacha was president in the 90s. And this is what we talk about in uh, the podcast, A Nation for Thieves. But here's a, a individual who had, was a military leader who had a coup in the country, became president, and in his short tenure as president, looted the country of $5 billion. And you think, oh, my gosh, what good could have been done in the 90, late 90s and into the early 2000s with $5 billion? Education, uh, child infant mortality, uh, Ebola, uh, fighting Boko Haram, all of this money that could have gone to uh, strengthening their military uh, to be used against uh, terrorist extremists. All of this could have been done had $5 billion not been looted from that country. And Abacha is a great case example, though, because not only did the U.S., uh, Switzerland and other countries come in and say, I think Switzerland found at least 750 million in Swiss bank accounts. I was able to trace another 630 million of Abacha's money. And we did, working with the government of Nigeria, work on ways to return that money, A, so there's full transparency and it doesn't disappear again. Um, I'd say that Nigeria has been much better at fighting corruption under President Buhari, but it still has a long way to go. Um, right now, South Sudan, for the last two years, has been deemed the most corrupt country in the world. And, um, you know, we consider it a violent kleptocracy because their military, their national security services actually used not only to oppress any opposition, to oppress investigative journalists or people fighting for anti-corruption, but uh, their militaries are used against their civilian population. Uh, 400,000 people have died in the country in the last decade, and uh, like 4.3 billion uh, million people are displaced in the country. And so I, I've investigated uh, those people profiting from rape as a tool of war, um, the amount of money that has been looted out of state coffers. So right now, I mean, when you're the most co corrupt country in the world, uh, as per uh, TI's uh, Transparency International's perceived corruption index, but then you look, my gosh, you're beating out Venezuela, Syria, China, Russia. I mean, the bottom 10, those countries really need to be the focus of anti-corruption act, uh, activities. The, you mentioned uh, the, the funds can't be used for things like fighting terrorism. Uh, leads me to a broader question, and that is, what's the connection between kleptocracy and terrorists? Are there some jurisdictions in which they're sort they're working 
together? I mean, the obvious answer you already gave, and that is you can't use money to fight terrorism because it's going in the pockets of these oligarchs or what what have you. But is there, uh, in your investigations, your work either at the FBI or now, what's the connection to terrorism and terrorist financing uh, when there's this level of corruption? Well, I think a great deal of it has to do with the inability to maintain an honest control of their country because the country is already, because of corruption, in such dire straits, right? You have people facing famine, starvation, flooding, uh, food insecurity, medical insecurity, COVID. uh, And while money is being looted and your civilian population is hurting, uh, often your military is weakened and then you open the door to people like Boko Haram and other uh, militant extremists who are now fighting that government. That government's main um, purpose is to stay in power and to keep a tight control over state coffers and, and access to money. They have weakened their country, though, by having an ineffective government. People who, like in South Sudan, some state government employees haven't been paid in six months. You think they're coming to work? You think they're doing their job? No, they're out with other jobs so they can feed their families. Um, The military is weak and the civilian population is not in a position to fight back. They're, they're, They're just existing and trying to keep alive in many cases, having trouble to feed their families. They, they don't have jobs, there is no currency. Uh, there was a huge, uh, you know, a thousand percent inflation. So now you have somebody like Boko Haram and uh, Al-Shabaab and other militant groups coming in and fighting the existing regime. And it just creates such a level of chaos in the country. I want to also give you a chance to talk about the Century, the organization you work for now. Tell us a little bit about that and the work that you do there. Yeah, I mean, I was just so fortunate. When I retired from the FBI, uh, what a lot of people don't know is our mandatory retirement age for agents is 57. And uh, so I was getting ready to retire. And all I wanted to do is keep being an investigator, right? I mean, I just love what I do. And I know my skill set, you know, that's it. And so uh, I got uh, the Century, which was co-founded by actor George Clooney and John Pendergast. Um, it's all about not just fighting corruption, but it's corruption that is fueling war crimes, atrocities, and violence. So like we haven't looked at Nigeria because Nigeria is a corrupt country, but the government isn't attacking their own civilian population, right? So we have been concentrating on South Sudan, Sudan, Central African Republic, and uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Central Africa, but we've recently expanded to uh, look at Myanmar, Zimbabwe, Libya, and Azerbaijan. So um, we really look at greed that's fueling atrocities and conflict. So um, I've been investigating South Sudan now for the last, going on seven years. Wow. Uh, get you out of here on this. One of the things that um, you know, our community, our broad community, is financial crime prevention folks in the government and in the private sector, in firms and institutions. Uh, you already mentioned the Enablers Act. What's your general sense of how the financial sector is doing in terms of being both proactive and, in some cases, reactive, but proactive in attempting to go after what I'll just say euphemistically, the bad guys. Obviously, there's been AML laws on the books for decades. 
We'd like to think that we're, we're doing a lot of good things. But what's your sense when you talk to not a bank president, but an AML professional in those institutions? Do you feel that in general, they're getting the support they should get? They're doing not doing enough because it's never enough. But what's your what's your sense of what I would consider to be our our colleagues in the private sector in terms of of how they're doing? I will tell you, the AML investigators that work for banks that I know have just been doing a phenomenal job, but I would say it all comes down to resources. Yeah. Um, you know, the AML aspect of uh, banking does not make money for the bank, and it is a, a financial institution whose one of their goals is to reap a profit. Right. And um, I think more money needs to be dedicated to, uh, because the reality is, uh, for the majority of countries that I look at, when money is offshored and capital flight uh, money leaves the country, it's leaving in U.S. dollars uh, for so much of that money. And that means it's transversing through U.S. financial institutions. So I think the uh, as good of a job as they have been doing and as cooperative as they are with law enforcement, uh, more assets could always be dedicated um, to going uh, to funding the anti-money laundering efforts uh, for all the major financial institutions, I am glad that the Enablers Act or the Crooks Act or the Patriot Act have all pushed to get better regulation and uh, requirements for banks and other financial institutions to uh, have stricter policies and, and really be the watchdogs and the gatekeepers of the money moving through U.S. Uh, banks, I will say again, uh, on our podcast, A Nation for Thieves, we really try to get information out there and let everybody know, like, I mean, I could ask 100 people what is kleptocracy and they won't know. And I'm right. hoping after listening to the podcast, they will know. And they'll not only know what kleptocracy is, they'll understand how it impacts the entire globe. Well, Deborah, um, A Nation for Thieves, it's on Apple Podcasts. Uh, there'll be seven episodes. They drop every Tuesday. So uh, when we're, we're recording this, the fifth one's not dropped yet. Uh, having listened to a few of them, I haven't been through the, all of them yet, but I'm very excited to, to go through the entire uh, list because I do think we only get better when we get additional information. And, you know, the AML professionals may generally know what this is about. And you are also, you know, we talked about legislation. One of the things that came out of the uh, uh, AML law, the AML law from last year, from 2021, is a new list of priorities from the government. And one of the priorities is corruption. So I think bankers knew that before, but you've given us really great insight and the program will give you even greater insight into the impact and all that goes into doing these investigations. So I want to thank you so much for taking the time. Again, remind folks, A Nation for Thieves, you can get uh, that now. We'll put that out with the link of this conversation. But thanks for taking some time today. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations, brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.